And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Peter Cousins back to the program today for the second of a two-part interview. Peter is a former U.S. Foreign Service officer and historian. He has edited or written almost 20 books, having won many awards along the way. Today, we will conclude discussing the last in his trilogy of books looking at U.S. government wars against Native Americans. The first two were The Earth is Weeping, The Epic Story of the Indian Wars for the American West, and Tecumseh and the Prophet. The new one is entitled A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and the Epic War for the American South, which is published by Alfred A. Knopf. Peter, thank you for coming back for another episode. When we left off, we were talking about the Red Sticks. This movement led to the Creek Civil War. How much did this weaken the Creeks and their ability then to defend themselves against the, the coming American War? Pretty dramatically, because they, you know, they, they, they essentially in the War of 1812, you had, as the uh, uh, Civil War widened, you had the Lower Creeks, for the most part, looking to the United States for protection looking to even to the state government of Georgia, with whom they used to have kind of antagonist relations for help against the, the Upper Creek Red Sticks. And you had the Upper Creek Red Sticks looking to both to the British, even though they were you know way off in, in Michigan and Canada, looking to them for supplies and hoping that they would initiate a new front on the Gulf Coast. And in the meantime, looking to the Spaniards and was then West Florida, Pensacola, for, for assistance. So, yeah, the Lower Creeks gravitating toward the Americans, the Upper Creeks toward the British and the and the Spaniards. And the, the Red Sticks numbered about maybe between four and 6,000 warriors, the Lower Creeks perhaps something less, but they were disunited as a people. It's amazing to think that America was involved with the War of 1812 with the British, the British their main war were the Napoleonic Wars going on at the time. And this ostensibly a sideshow to those two major wars is the one that really decides the fate of the nation for the next hundred years. Absolutely. When the Creek Civil War metastasized into war against the United States, and that occurred because the Red Sticks wanted to punish those Metis who lived outside of their domain who had taken up residence in what's called the Tensaw region of, of uh, Alabama on the Alabama-Mississippi border north of Mobile, wanted to punish them for taking the part of the Americans. And that led to the greatest massacre by Indians of mixed race, white and black settlers in American history, Fort Mims in August 1813 in Alabama. That massacre triggered you know, demand on the part of Tennessee, Georgia, and Mississippi Territory to, you know, for a war, a war of annihilation against the Red Sticks. But interestingly, as he said, it was a sideshow for the administration of President James Madison because the United States Army could barely hold its own against the British and the North. They they lost Michigan for to to Tecumseh and the, and the and his British allies. The, I mean, the capital itself was burnt at one point, and they just didn't have the resources to give the Creek War the attention that it was due and to recognize the threat for what it was that uh, even without the possibility of, of British armed intervention in the Gulf Coast, the loss by the Mississippi volunteers, Tennessee volunteers, and Georgia volunteers who were pretty much left, left to their own devices 
if they were to lose the war, the Deep South would remain in American Indian hands. What precipitated the attack on Fort Mims, and how did that galvanize Andrew Jackson and his ilk in Tennessee? The Red Sticks initially made their strongest threats against the Metis and Creeks who had settled, who had left the Upper Creek Tawas in the western portion of Alabama to settle in the, the Tennessee region, again, this, this area north of Mobile, and just break free of Creek law, Creek culture, and, and welcomed, also welcomed Americans, settlers and uh, into their midst. And when it became apparent that the Red Sticks were hostile to that ten, to the Tennessee region and the American settlers started to panic and, and, and fort up, so to speak, build stockades, call out the militia, the, the Metis and, and the, were on their side. And there was a skirmish between Red Sticks who were returning with ammunition and goods from Pensacola and some Mississippi militia and Metis and Creek volunteers who were fighting with them and the Red Sticks. And that's so so enraged the Red Sticks that they went after the Metis who happened to have withdrawn into Fort Mims, one of the stockades that the the settlers in Tennessee had had built. The fight, which turned into a massacre, was meant to punish the Metis and Creeks who had strayed from not only from the Creek Confederacy, but, but also from the Red Sticks movement. And I think the Red Sticks realize only after the fact that that would trigger a wider war with the United States, which at first they welcomed. Some of the Red Stick leaders actually believed they could march all the way to the East Coast and conquer the entire South. But it was it was that massacre. And it, it was it started out as a battle, but it quickly degenerated into a massacre of women and children by the Red Sticks. The, the outrage over that energized people like Andrew Jackson and Governor Willie Blount of Tennessee and also the governor of, of Georgia and of Mississippi Territory to fear that the Red Sticks would, their movement would, would, would threaten their states and territory and also kind of strengthen the desire they already had to expand into Creek lands and take Creek land for, the, for their own purposes. Had it not been for the incompetence of the officers at Fort Mims, it probably wouldn't have devolved into the massacre. Exactly. Fort Mims, that, that chapter is, is it's a pretty, it's a pretty tra- it's a, I don't want to say tragic comic because it's absolutely horrific episode, but the commander at Fort Mims was an alcoholic major Mississippi volunteers who actually had a death wish and took no real precautions in, in spite of... Warning after warning after warning. Warning after warning. He even left the front gate open. I mean, it was... It was the height of, of, of imbecility and incompetence. When we say imbecility and incompetence, we should talk about General Thomas Flournoy. <laughs> right, Thomas Flournoy, when the war broke out, he was the commander of the military district, the, the uh, regular army commander that encompassed Mississippi, uh, Alabama theater. And he he was fixated on a, not, a then non-existent threat of a British invasion of the Gulf Coast. That would become quite real after the Napoleonic War ended a little over a year, year and a half in the future. But at the time, I mean, he was just 
fixated on a, on a, on a phantom threat, and he refused to to permit Mrs. the Mississippi Volunteers to uh, to take offensive action against the Red Sticks until he was finally relieved of command. But uh, that certainly delayed retaliation against the Red Sticks. Now, over the years, we hear every once in a while people say government should be run like a private business. And we see with how the quartermasters were replaced with private concessionaires on what a terrible effect that had on the United States forces. The whole conduct of the Creek War, it was a mess. Again, the Madison administration was preoccupied with fighting the British in the North and the East. They scanned attention to it. They did assign a, a revolutionary war hero named Thomas Pinckney as overall commander to to uh, try to orchestrate cooperation between the volunteer forces from Georgia, Mississippi Territory, and Tennessee. But that was, for all intents and purposes, impossible because between the, the, the three forces, you had the entire Upper Creek country, and it was a, it was all but impossible to communicate in a timely fashion between the Tennessee militia and volunteers and the Georgia volunteers and militia and those in Mississippi. So you had various offensives launched into the red stick country from Mississippi, from Georgia, and from Tennessee that were ill-coordinated at best and for all intents and purposes were, were done on their own without any, any real meaningful coordination. To top it off, the, the quartermasters, as I say, those who supplied the food and supplies and other essential supplies, they were contractors who were out to make a buck. And uh, they did a horrific job in Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, keeping, keeping the troops from starving for all intent and purposes. And then it was their failure that, that led directly to the, to the failure of several of the incursions into the, into the Creek country, into the Red Stick country, I should say. As the call goes out for Tennessee to muster volunteers to go fight the Creek, Andrew Jackson is in terrible, terrible physical shape. Yeah, Andrew Jackson, he, at the time that the Creek War broke out, he was the major general of what was then considered West Tennessee militia, what we, of course, today consider Middle Tennessee was then West Tennessee. He had gotten himself into a, a ill-conceived brawl, a gunfight with Thomas Hart Bent who had been his adjutant in the Tennessee militia, actually was probably his greatest ally in Tennessee militia, but he'd had the, uh, the, the I don't know, the lack of good sense and, and seconded an opponent, the opponent of Thomas Hart Benton's brother in a duel in which Thomas Hart Benton's brother was wounded in the buttocks. Benton had been in Washington, D.C. trying to get Andrew Jackson reimbursed by the government for money he had expended on the West the volunteers when he heard about it and you know a, a, a battle of, of words erupted between the two it turned into at jackson's investigation into a shooting match jackson was the only one badly wounded in his gunfight in nashville his right shoulder and was shattered and, and he almost bled out i mean he this was just a few weeks before uh fort mims he he was literally lying prostrate in a in a in, in Nashville, uh, trying to recover from his grievous wounds when, when the war broke out. Even though he was bloodied, he was never sanguine. He was an irascible man at best. At, at best, yeah. And I'm sure that pain did not serve anyone well in how he prosecuted the war. No, it didn't. I mean, Jackson, at his best, he was six feet tall, 
and about 146, 148 pounds of sinew and meanness. And he got up from his sick bed and, and went on campaign while his his wound was still superating while there were still bone fragments oozing out without the use of his right arm. He was prostrated by reoccurring bouts of diarrhea, yet he took to the field. And the illness and the the, the effects of his wounding plagued him throughout the, the Creek War. And yeah, it only contributed, it contributed both to his meanness and remarkably to his tenacity and his single-mindedness purpose to defeat the Red Sticks when everybody else, when Georgians, Mississippians, and even the governor of Tennessee was ready to say, you know, maybe enough is enough. The Red Sticks don't, don't pose a threat to us, and we can live with their existence in Alabama. Jackson single-mindedly wanted to prosecute the war to its logical end, which in his mind was a complete defeat of the Red Sticks, particularly before the British could come to their assistance and uh, secure the entire Deep South for the, the uh, United States, uh, less a greatly reduced Lower Creek country. Well, he had his own ideas about Indian removal far before his presidency. He did. And they weren't entirely his own. Interesting, I discovered that uh, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson sort of shared the same ultimate notion of what would happen to the Indians in the South. He hoped, on one hand, that they could be convinced to become yeoman farmers and Christians civilized in the parlance of the day and be convinced to give up most of their huge tracts of land. But on the other hand, the practical part of him, especially after the Louisiana Purchase, saw that more realistically, they probably would end up out in the Louisiana country, that is to say, modern-day eastern Oklahoma. And he communicated those views to Andrew Jackson, surprisingly, as early as 1803, the same time he was communicating them confidentially to his Indian agents, he wrote a letter to uh, Jackson, then only a former senator, expressing those views. So those views, you know, the kernel of those views actually rested with Thomas Jefferson. You mentioned a lot of people weren't as committed as he was. Right. Men in the uh, volunteers had signed up for a year's contract, and by God, they meant one year. And they left him in mass. He considered it desertion. They legitimately considered that they had fulfilled their terms of service. And at one point, he was left in an advanced base in the, in the northern reaches of the Red Stick country with only a few dozen men, officers and men. But by God, he held on until uh, more volunteers could be scraped up. And ultimately, he was reinforced with a, a, a regular army regiment and, and a good number of volunteers. But for a few months there, he was literally on his own for all intent purposes. These men are not at home. They are not with their families. They need to support their families, and they're not going to be paid until they mustered out. So they needed to get money for their families as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, right was not on Jackson's side. Tenacity of single-mindedness was, but others didn't share his ardor for you know pursuing the, the, the war against the Red Sticks to its conclusion. I'll have to tell you, I was not expecting a naval battle in the telling of the Creek War, the canoe fight. Oh, yeah. It was was something of a sideshow, but it came to loom large, in, certainly in Alabama, historical lore and maybe Southern lore, larger terms. A fellow named Sam Dale, who was 
you really can put him on the same level of, 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 as, as David Crockett or, or Daniel Boone in terms of his, 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 in, his influence, at least regionally. He was a larger-than-life figure in the American South, a frontiersman who became a, a militia and volunteer commander. But when fortunes were at their lowest for Mississippi territory, while Flournoy was still prohibiting an invasion of the Red Stick country, while the Red Sticks were still lurking about in the Tensaw region, still threatening that area. Sam Dale and a handful of, volu- of, of volunteers challenged, I think it was he and, and three other volunteers with an African-American rowing the, the boat, challenged a canoe full of red sticks to a fight on, on the river. And they killed or sent fleeing all the red sticks. And that little victory came at an opportune time and became the stuff of myth. Sam Vale and, and his, his three other volunteers besting a, a canoe full of, of, of red sticks. And uh, while it didn't really have any impact on the, on the a large impact on the war itself, it did raise morale to Tensaw. And it did cause actually, it did cause red stick war parties that were prowling in the Tensaw to kind of back off. So it, it was a, it was sort of an important early moral victory for the for the Mississippians. Now, you mentioned David Crockett, as he preferred to be called uh, back in the day. Right. Also, Sam Houston is involved in Absolutely. The, the big battle here. And it's amazing the damage he took while he was there. Yeah, David Crockett played a, played a role. He was a, six, he was a six-month volunteer. He saw action in early battles under Andrew Jackson and left some really horrific and vivid accounts of the fighting that I drew from. He was not particularly proud of the fighting against the Red Six of his part in it. Sam Houston was an ensign in the 39th U.S. Infantry, which was recruited in East Tennessee and then given to Andrew Jackson to serve under him in the climactic battle of the, the Creek War, the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And Sam Houston, I mean, he took a pounding in that battle. He was took an arrow to the leg, and a couple of other wounds, severe wounds. He kept fighting on until he finally collapsed through loss of blood. And he was left by surgeons after the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and the, the night after the battle, left to die. No, no one thought he would survive his wounds. But he not only survived his wounds and survived the horrific jolting you know, ride from Horseshoe Bend back to, back to hospitals in Tennessee, but of course went on to become famous in Texas. But even though he was just a subaltern, uh, his heroism at Horseshoe Bend caught Andrew Jackson's attention as well. At this Battle of Horseshoe Bend, in the acknowledgments, you mention and get to include in your book paintings from Keith Rocco, which are incredible insights into the time. Keith Rocco is, is my best friend, my closest friend. We've been friends for 30 years now, and he's also one of the top military and historic artists, uh, not only in the United States, but also also in Europe. And he did a series of, of tremendous paintings, six paintings of Horseshoe Bend, uh, commissioned by the National Park Service for roadside stops at the Horseshoe Bend National Military Park. And I was able to get permission to to incorporate those into the into the book. I think they they, they vividly uh, relate the story of the battle as, as well, if not better, than any narrative could. Of course, Jackson was triumphant at Horseshoe Bend, and he was loath, though, to give any credit to the Cherokee and his Creek allies in the victory. 
we had time, I would explain Horseshoe Bend in greater detail. But in a nutshell, it was an initiative of Cherokee volunteers who were part of Jackson's force in attacking the red stick position from behind that enabled Jackson to attack the red stick's defenses from in front and win the battle. And if the Cherokee had not taken this initiative, Jackson would not have won the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And that was clear to most of his subordinates, including the commander of the 39th Regiment, which led the the decisive attack against the Red Stick defenses. He acknowledged that without the Cherokee's initiative in the Creek rear, they wouldn't have won the battle. But but Jackson made made no no mention of that in his report. He only said that the, his Creek allies and the Cherokees fought with fought with valor. But you know, it was very vague beyond that. Because the works that the Red Sticks had mounted there, they were insurmountable if you came from the front. Absolutely. It was the the red the red stick position at Horseshoe Bend, it was literally a horseshoe-shaped bend in the Tallapoosa River, and they built this, these uh, breastworks across it that were as strong as anything built by Union or Confederate armies during sieges in the Civil War. Remarkably strong barricades. Jackson had a top-gun force of two cannon. That was his artillery. With that, he had expected to, to breach those palisades and then pour through them. And after an hour or so of... of the shells bouncing off the palisades or embedding themselves harmlessly in the palisades while his infantry were subjected to pot shots from the uh, the red sticks behind the barricades. Jackson was at a complete loss what to do. And the Creeks were on the far bank of the Tallapoosa behind the red stick lines. The red sticks had their village at the apex of, of that horseshoe bend. And that's where the women and children were. And the notion was that Jackson's cavalry and his Cherokee and Creek volunteers, who numbered several hundred, would prevent the Red Sticks from fleeing the battlefield when Jackson, as he sought, poured victoriously over the barricade and trapped them on this peninsula and mopped them all up. But in fact, what was to have been a secondary role for the Cherokee in preventing the Red Sticks from, from fleeing the battlefield, instead they themselves swam across the river, took red stick canoes, attacked the village themselves, compelled the red sticks to leave the barricades in large numbers to to protect their families. And that vitiated the red stick defenses enough for Jackson finally to attack and succeed. Now you talk about the cannonballs bouncing off the barricades. Musket balls would do the same. And one of the few moments of levity in the book is when an Indian warrior believes he is mortally wounded. Right. Yeah. By a spent ball. Right. <laughs> he goes, what, I, I am dead? And then he's just going to yes. welt. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a war leader, too. Didn't do a whole lot for the prestige with which he was regarded. <laughs> so what would happen to the prophets in this time when they would promise things like the American musket balls will disintegrate when they hit you, when their proclamations were not borne out to be actual truth? Not only did that happen, but one of the two principal prophets himself was wounded on two separate occasions, and he declared himself to be bulletproof. And both occasions, he absented himself from the Red Sticks for a long period of time, not only to heal, but to go into hiding. Actually, the majority of the prophets ended up being killed during the course of the Red Stick War. The leading Red Stick prophet, um, a team named Josiah Francis, actually survived the war and went to Florida and 
mingled among the Seminoles and went to Great Britain for for a year before coming back. That's that's a whole other story in the book subsequent to the pre-war. But they lost prestige, but they either hightailed it out of harm's way or they were killed in battle. After the war and the treaties are signed, and of course, Americans, both federal and individuals, not respecting the terms of the treaty, it's really not surprising that a bunch of people who didn't want to listen to the King of England would not observe the diktats from Washington either. No. In fact, initially, uh, the Madison administration wanted to impose, I think, fairly lenient terms on the Red Sticks, essentially to turn over the leading instigators of, of violence, you know, the henchmen, and surrender enough of the Upper Creek i.e. red stick country, to reimburse the government for the costs of the war, but otherwise let things return to the way they had been. Jackson, he was not one of the original peace commissioners, but he, through the influence that he exercised by virtue of his victory at Horseshoe Bend and the state of Tennessee exercised by having contributed the most to victory, he became de facto single commissioner to treat with the red sticks. And he not only demanded a large portion of the upper Creek country, the rest of the country, but also a large tract of the lower Creek country, that of his lower Creek allies, that portion of their country that bordered on Spanish West Florida, because he believed that uh, a, a British attempt on the Gulf Coast was inevitable, which in fact did occur. And he wanted as much of a buffer zone between Spanish West Florida and American land as possible. So he he uh, took much more land than was ever intended. The Madison administration uh, gave in to him. And that just set in chain the whole subsequent chain of events that, that led to the, the dispossession of all four tribes. Once the Red Sticks were defeated, there was no, no military force left to compete with the United States. And there was a gradual chipping away of what remained of Creek lands during the 18, late 18-teens and the 1820s into the 1830s. And along with uh, Choctaw, Cherokee, and, and Chickasaw land. Now, you're closing in on two dozen books written or edited and dealing with war and misery, privation, massacres. How do you inhabit this world so much and keep a positive outlook in your personal life? Well, my wife told me it's about time that I left the world as far as she's concerned. <laughs> she, she's tired of reading reading these books. But it's a, it's a tragic story, but it's a story that has to be told. We have to understand, have to uh, come to terms with, with, to understand how we became the nation we are today, for better or worse. My next book should be a bit more uplifting. I'm well underway in the research and should begin writing it later this year. And the working title is Deadwood, uh, Gold, <laughs> Guns, and Greed in the American West. And I look at the real story of Deadwood and use that as kind of a microcosm for understanding the growth of towns in the Old West, how they developed, you know, how much of, of what we know of the Old West is fiction or true, so, you know, through the lens of Deadwood, and also the kind of the parallel story, and this, of course, is, is a tragic element, uh, this possession of the Lakota Sioux of the Black Hills, kind of the, the secondary arc to the story. So there'll be, there'll be a bit more on the uplifting side, but there'll still be tragedy. I guess it's kind of unavoidable when you write, write history. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and spending two episodes with us. It's been really enlightening. And just to 
understand how this started a very long chain of dominoes in American history is really interesting. And to wrap it up, you know, if the United States had not won the Greek War, you know, who knows when the cotton culture would have begun in the Deep South. Those lands may still have been in Indian hands within a generation or, or less of the Civil War. It, it may have prevented a civil war because the states of Mississippi and Alabama may not have existed. Very plausible possibility. British influence with abolition may have actually taken hold earlier. Yes. Once again, Peter, thank you so much for spending time with us, and thank you for A Brutal Reckoning. I thank you as well. Peter Cousins is the author of A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and The Epic War for the American South, which is published by Alfred A. Knopf. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.